0: Hello, and welcome to Faith So Simple, the podcast that explores the Christian faith, transforming the difficult, complex, and downright nerdy into simple, straightforward terms that any average Joe can follow. I'm your host, Joe Staines, and if you're like me, an average Joe, then I invite you to come along as we dive into scripture, history, theology, and many other disciplines to discover the truth of God's Word. Hello, and welcome back. It's episode four, and we've got a great lineup for you today. Nikki and I share a difficult experience our family had recently and what to do when you get a curveball like that. You know the line, when life gives you a lemon, you make lemonade. Well, sometimes that works, and sometimes you just gotta eat the lemon. So we discuss that a little bit, and then I go into a, a deep look at what the sacrificial system was back at both in the Old Testament and how that led up to the New Testament and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, and then we end this episode taking a look at whether Christianity is compatible with other worldviews and religions or if it really is set apart and separate from all the others. I hope you enjoy today's show. All right, here we are. New week, new nerd word, and I think this is going to be your week. Do you think? I really do.
1: I'm not sure.
0: I I feel really, really confident that you've got it this week.
1: Oh no, that's pressure.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe a little bit, but... Okay. I feel like there needs to be some kind of, like, consequence. I'll make dinner for a week. <laughs>
1: That's never going to happen, <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs>
0: okay, are you ready? Yeah. Drum roll. Da, 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 da. The word is...
1: Oh.
0: Are you ready? No,
1: I'm nervous. I don't know why I'm nervous. Ah, go on then.
0: Theodicy.
1: Oh, I do know what the word is because it was on a podcast that I heard the other day. And I've totally forgotten
0: (laughs) why. You can do it. You know it. You know it.
1: Um, It's something to do with the existence of a good, that God is good in a fallen world or something like that.
0: Yeah, that's really, really, really close. So I'll do the whole Miriam Webster's back again.
1: Oh, here she is. I don't know if it's a woman or not. It just sounds like a woman. I'll go with it. Miriam. Here she is. I imagine her to be like a little... Really proper British woman. Oh, Miriam <laughs> Webster.
0: We'll say she. All right. Um, says that it is a defense of God's goodness and omnipotence in view of the existence of evil. But another way to think of it is either a vindication of or explanation for God's justice to answer the problem of evil in the world.
1: Literally didn't listen to a single word you said. Excellent. Then, brain switched off.
0: Okay, so it is explaining. The nature of God despite the fallen. It's like you said before, that God is good, even though there is evil in the world. Right. Yeah. Okay, I guess good. Yeah. It's an explanation for that and yes. how and why he has the justice that he has. Or was this going
1: to actually be your word this week? Yeah,
0: yeah. It was going to be my word, okay. totally. that's, that's why. so crazy. So when you said, oh, I've listened to a podcast. I learned a new word today, theodicy. And then you said, that's not one of your words, is it? And I paused. And then I said, I didn't say anything. I didn't acknowledge ah! that. And then I said... So what does it mean? <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. How random. No, that's great, though. So th- the theo part is theos, which is Greek, which means God. And the second part is Dike, which means justice. Mm. Uh, so thinking of God being like a good God mm. and everything else and just how things happen. It doesn't matter if you're right. good or bad. Like good things happen to bad people and bad things happen yeah. to good people. And just that our son had a really bad break. Uh, he broke his forearm, which was horrendous. He didn't deserve anything. Like, it's mm-hmm. not like he earned, he wasn't doing anything wrong. He wasn't doing anything he shouldn't have been doing. Right. It's not like he earned the break in his arm or whatever. But right. I just, I didn't know if, um, how do you feel or reconcile, like, with God when things like that happen?
1: Mm. I think if it had been maybe like earlier in my walk with God, mm. maybe I'd have pondered that some, um, and maybe kind of questioned, like, why? Like, I don't know, maybe not in such a dramatic fashion. Mm. But I think I would maybe would have questioned that more. Um, I think where we are now in our walk, though, it's not even, that isn't really something that even kind of crosses my mind with stuff like that. I think the thing that that I think of in those situations is how grateful I am that we have God, Mm. and how just amazing it is that, in those times of just awfulness and just hardship that we have a loving father that we can go to and that we can rely on and who has our best interests in 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 heart in his heart. Yeah, yeah. Um, at heart. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's not, not really, it's not really something that I kind of think about. I think there's always kind of a, a reason or a purpose behind stuff. Hmm. I think we'll learn some things through this, some strength that he didn't know he had and resilience and us as a family as well. Um, Yeah. I think for us, it really, again, just showed us the importance of the people that are around us. So when the accident happened, we had, we were on a church social event and we had lots of people around us and that church family really stepped in to help us out in those, in that moment. And Mm. I think without having that, it would have just been me and you. And, and we'd have probably got through it, but it was much easier having the family. Yeah,
0: yeah, no, I think that's, I think those are some good points that you bring out. I guess we are at a point in our walk where where we did have that reliance on God. Um, and it was a bad break too, just like it was almost bone through the skin bad, um, which neither one of us have dealt with before. So I think having the family around us of people that we trust that are also um, part of the prayer and. Mm. uh, support and everything. I think that's really important to to pull out. But if, if someone, um, is listening or whatever, if they're not at that point in their faith, do you have any, uh, either thoughts or either words of wisdom or anything about if, if you would have a, a, a moment mm. of questioning at mm-hmm. that point where if something happens and you wonder why, why would you do this God either to me or to my child or yeah. to the, someone I love? Um, is that, do you think that's okay for someone to go through that? And if so, um, what would you say to them, maybe, if they're if they're walking through something like that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think it's only natural that you will have those times, probably, at some point in your journey, on your walk with God. Um, like I say, I've definitely had that in the past, I think. But I think the thing I would say is, is to go to God with those things. Go to God in your pain or your frustration or whatever it is. However it is that you are emotionally or whatever, just to go to God and give that all to him and to have that conversation with God. I've definitely had those conversations of, you know, crying out to God and I don't understand and I don't know why, but but it's that, it's that next step after that. So it's going to God with that, I don't know why or I don't understand and then, but I trust in you anyway, but I trust that you'll get me through this, but I trust there'll be some reason, maybe I'll never know a reason as to why it happened, but I know that you're a good God and you have our best interests at heart so I would one say go to God anyway even when you're having those feelings and two trust him anyway lean on the promises of God read them in your bible get them in your heart and try and just focus focus your heart on those things and and also on other people and other situations as well I think that's another good thing like if I'm ever feeling like oh woe is me sorry for myself whatever just go and serve someone, go Mm -hmm. and do something else for some, like take your eyes off yourself and put them on other people.
0: Yeah, of course I agree. I think that's great. And and like you said, the Bible also has several examples where Job, for instance, Mm -hmm. uh, even David and in the Psalms where uh, there was a lot of questioning uh, of God, of not being certain about what was going to happen. But it's like you said, I think is just no matter where you are taking that to him and, just laying it all down at, at his feet, yeah. no matter how you feel. Yeah. Uh, I can remember being very angry with God when I was younger as well. And I used to actually, I'd close my door and I'd actually be like shouting at God, angry with him, not saying, telling him how angry I was with him. Mm. Um, and at that point in my life, I didn't have the uh, maturity to go to the next level of, but I trust you anyway. Right. <laughs> I was just angry, but I didn't know who else to tell. And I would tell him. So I think that's great. I think so. If someone is listening, if they're going through that, or maybe, you know, someone who's, who's going through that phase, uh, to just encourage them through it, really, uh, mm. that it's OK to have those feelings. It's OK to have the the concerns or the questions or the doubts, but that ultimately we bring those questions, concerns and doubts to God himself. Right. And then he will uh, he'll provide the answers if we trust him, like you said. Yeah, absolutely. yeah, I think that's great.
1: I think it's as well getting to the point where you can be content with not having the answers. Yeah. You might not ever get the answers That's as right. to why something happened or why someone won't respond in a way you think they should or whatever. But again, just that bigger question of or not question whatever it is of just that God is a is a good God. He's Theodicy I don't know, what was the what is the thing? Theodicy. 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 not theodicy. Theodicy. <laughs> That's theodicy. the Odyssey. <laughs> the Theodicy. So he's a good God. He's a good God. Even though despite. stuff is hard sometimes. That's
0: right. That's right. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for thank talking a little bit about that. I think that's good and uh, I think it's good for people to hear probably what's going on in our lives too. Mm. Um, I'm going to
1: listen to that other podcast I was listening to. Yeah. <laughs> Get next week's word. <laughs> I'll have to stop emailing them. Yeah, honestly, <laughs> anyway, all right.
0: goodbye. All right, thanks. Bye. let's continue our journey looking into the foundations of the Christian worldview and how that shapes our experience of life and how we react to the world around us. We've been focusing on sin, and I really didn't mean to spend a, a total of uh, several episodes just focused on sin, but it really is critical to understanding how we experience life and and how we process events that we go through and things that we see and, and, and live. So we've been journeying into that existence of sin and how it separates us from a holy God. But the overwhelming message of the Bible is that God desires more than anything else to heal the broken relationship between him and us. He wants to redeem the lost and, and heal all of creation so that we can be in his presence once again. He wants us to be free from pain, free from sickness and death and injury, and ultimately free from evil. Well, God does this through extreme examples of divine grace and justice and forgiveness and also deep personal loss himself. And the Apostle Paul reveals in his letter to the Roman Church in chapters 5 that just as sin entered the world through one man, Adam, so grace also came through one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. In order to receive the grace of God, you see, sin must be dealt with. Well, Harkening back very quickly to the word that we just had of theodicy, remember God didn't create sin himself, but sin did enter the world. Now, if you haven't heard uh, the episode three, I encourage you to go back and listen, and and especially to the last section of episode three, because that really was an example of theodicy and and walking through that process of how there can be evil if there is a good God, but. I want to use that concept as a springboard in this episode to focus on what the next question would be or could be from that. And that's simply, what are you going to do about it? If there's all this evil that exists, how are you going to fix it? Well, the answer is, he's going to do everything. And throughout the Bible, God says, I will judge, I will punish, I will eradicate evil. But he also says, I will heal, I will forgive and I will show grace and mercy. So how does God reveal these statements and promises throughout the the scripture? You'll remember from episode three that God reveals as early as Adam and Eve being kicked out of the Garden of Eden, that sin and evil demands judgment, and that this judgment requires blood. Well, why blood? Well, Leviticus 17 11 says that for the life of the flesh is in the blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So, here are a couple of interesting facts about blood. Blood performs the following functions throughout the body it uh, it provides transportation. Red blood cells deliver oxygen that are inhaled through the lungs, and it it also uh, carries other nutrients and hormones to vital organs and, and all of the tissue. And it removes waste, which is usually in the form of carbon dioxide created by the organs performing their unique functions, and it carries it to the lungs, and then that is what is exhaled. So the blood carries everything that is required for function and removes everything that would stop function. The other thing blood does is regulation. Blood helps maintain proper temperature and body pH balance. It also provides protection, carrying white blood cells to fight bacterial, viral, fungal, or parasitic infections, and platelets for clotting to stop blood loss. And uh, the National Cancer Institute also states that because blood contains living cells, blood is alive. That's quite an interesting statement, and it's a scientific statement coming from the National Cancer Institute. Well, it becomes quite clear scientifically that the life of the flesh is, in fact, in the blood. And it's amazing that God revealed this fact to the Israelites millennia before science ever confirmed it. Well, so the life is literally in the blood. And as explained in Leviticus, it has been given on the altar to make atonement. So now we're talking about altar and atonement. So what are we talking about? What are we looking at? We're looking at the sacrificial system. So here it comes into the scene. In fact, from the first people, nearly every time that the Old Testament scripture mentions a consecration, a need for repentance or worship, animal sacrifice and cleansing by blood is directly involved. A couple examples. Earliest, we mentioned before about the animal skins to cover Adam and Eve's nakedness. Abraham, when he was commanded by God, to sacrifice his promised son, Isaac, who was saved by God at the last moment when he provided a ram instead. When Moses was uh, in Egypt and he was speaking with Pharaoh and and delivering the plagues, there's the 10th plague right before the Exodus, when the blood of a sacrificed lamb was spread on the doorway so that the angel of death would pass over that particular household. And this, of course, is uh, a foreshadowing of the blood of Christ. Uh, And all of these examples really are shadows of Jesus' own sacrifice on the cross and how it applies to us. But we're going to take a closer look at the description of sacrifice, as described in Leviticus, in order to better understand Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. It wasn't just the Jews who performed sacrifices. In fact, every group of people around them also exercised sacrifice as a form of deity worship. However, the reasons and the methods varied from culture to culture or from belief to belief. But here are some of the names of the pagan gods that were being worshipped by those that were around the Israelites. And these are the names of the gods of the Canaanites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites that are mentioned frequently in the Old Testament. And these gods are Baal, Ashtoreth, Asherah, Chamash, and Moloch, And all of these involved prostitution, as I said before, uh, or degrading sexual behaviors as well as human sacrifice, the worst of which, uh, for Moloch, was child sacrifice by burning the child alive uh, on the altar. And just as we discussed in episode 3 how sin spun out of control from Adam all the way down through the generations, so did the sacrificial system. So God revealed that sin must be dealt with and judged through the form of sacrifice and blood. But again, man, in his fallen nature, took what God had designed— And ran with it in his own way. And so man took the sacrificial system and turned it into this this thing that spun out of control that that ended with these forms of sexual degradation and horrific forms of human sacrifice. Well, God detested all of these forms of sacrificial worship that incorporated sexual perversions, degrading human behaviors, and wanton horrific slaughter of defenseless children. Well, the Israelite forms of sacrificial worship were designed First and foremost, to restore God's people, but it was also designed to set them apart from the worship of these evil gods around them and the nations that worshiped these gods. It was also designed to protect the innocent and to mirror the coming sacrifice that his own son, Jesus Christ, would make in the future. Let's look a little bit closer at how the sacrifices were actually performed under the Jewish law. How they were performed is described in the first seven chapters in Leviticus in the Old Testament, and it explains that there are five types of sacrificial offerings. Burnt offerings, grain offerings, peace offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings. Now, the only offering that didn't require animal blood was the grain offering. And we're told in Leviticus 6.17 that, despite that, it is a thing most holy, like the sin offering and the guilt offering. So the grain offering was a form of sacrificial worship, but it was every bit as holy as a blood or sin sacrifice. I don't want to dwell on the grain sacrifices. We're going to continue on to the animal sacrifice, and there are a few key takeaways to note. First, only three of the five are applied as atonement for sin. Second, there are four key elements. There's the sinner, the one who broke the law, or the transgressor of the law. There's the animal, which is the thing to be sacrificed, which is the sin bearer. There's the priest, the mediator, facilitator, and director of the sacrifice, or the intercessor. And then there's God, who is the judge and the receiver of the sacrifice, or the forgiver. For purposes of this episode, we're going to stay focused on the sin offering. Remember, this had to be repeated for each sin which the offender made. Well, let me clarify, for each sin of which the offender was made aware of. So every time someone sinned, another sacrifice was required. But before we go too far into the sin sacrifice, I discovered an amazing passage that really exemplifies God's deepest desire for reconciliation as the sin sacrifice is explained, you quickly start to see a pattern of different acceptable animals depending on either the sin or the economic status of the person who sinned. So if you can't afford a particular animal, then what do you do? Because blood is required a life for life. Here's what God says, that if someone was so poor that they couldn't afford any of the required animals, there was still room to offer a sin sacrifice similar to the grain offering that was a flower, and that this would atone for the sin. So such is God's desire to give every single opportunity for his creation to come to him and be forgiven, that he would accept an offering, a sin offering, that didn't include blood if the person simply could not present it due to circumstances beyond their control. That's pretty incredible. I've never seen that before, and that really blew me away when I looked at it. Going back to how the sin offering was typically performed, the animal had to be unblemished. So that meant that no broken bones, uh, no diseases, no uh, abnormalities or deformities, nothing. It had to be perfect and whole and complete. Ideally, it was male uh, and a little bit of conjecture, but this was probably because a male is considered to be more valuable or the most valuable animal of the herd, if you, if you think about Uh, If you have a herd of animals, I'm not a farmer, but if you think about this, one male could support an entire flock. The offending party was required to lay their hand on the head of the animal before the animal was killed. And this was symbolic of transferring the guilt from the person to the animal. So blood is required for forgiveness, and therefore life is required for a life. But this indicates also that there must be a bearer of guilt In order for judgment and atonement to be fulfilled, there must be someone or something that is a host of the sin. So think abstractly with me just for a second. God's judgment is against sin, but sin on its own doesn't really have any power. It's just a thing. But when sin reveals itself in us, in people, then it can be dealt with through judgment and punishment. It's kind of like uh if you have a virus we can take covid for instance or measles on its own without a host it's it's harmless but once it has infected somebody then it becomes dangerous and it could be lethal not only does it infect the host but then it can also spread and infect others and it's in this form that it must be treated joined together with the host that's that's how the vaccines work uh we don't go out vaccinating Random viruses on desks and doorknobs and things, it has to be in the host, and that's how it's dealt with. So think of that similarly with the sin. By placing the hand on the forehead of the animal, it's symbolic of what is happening spiritually, of the sin being removed from the individual and placed upon the animal, so that the sin can still be judged and dealt with through the sacrifice that required blood. But as Hebrews tells us, this law was just a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. And we know this because it had to be performed continually again and again. So the problem is that with the animal sacrifice, it didn't eradicate sin. It didn't overcome sin. It simply covered it. And so it had to be done again and again. But we learn in Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, that God doesn't actually delight in any of these burnt sacrifices and offerings, but rather in the one who delights to do the will of God. Well, we also know that Jesus was the only human who was able to fully perform the will of God. And so here's the beauty of Jesus in the finality of his sacrifice. He was the only human to have lived who was susceptible to sin, but who remained sinless. So in this, he was unblemished. He was male. So remember the ideal of maleness of the animal sacrifice. But he took the entirety of the sins of the world upon himself, Just like the animal in the Old Covenant received the sins of the offender, our sins were put upon Jesus on the cross. And while there wasn't a symbolic placing a hand on the forehead of Jesus, you will recall that he was struck several times, both by the Jews, by the Pharisees, and he was also struck and mocked by the Gentiles. The sacrifice that he he gave covers, abolishes the sin of the world for both Jews and Gentiles. So here's the wonderful difference. Because he was human and perfect and innocent, when he took our punishment of bearing sin upon himself, no further sacrifices were or ever are required. It was the sacrifice to end all sacrifices and eradicate sin once for all. This is why Jesus explains in Matthew that he did not come to abolish the law or the prophets, but that he had come to fulfill them, and he does so completely and perfectly. So understanding all of this together is why Paul states in Romans that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So for us who adhere to the Christian worldview and defend the only truth worth pursuing, understanding the desperate state of sin in all of us is critical to explaining the greatness of God and what he accomplished through his son Jesus on the cross. This is the good news, the freedom from sin that God always promised, knew we were incapable of fulfilling by our own works was offered by himself in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. Well, I'd like to explore with you this uh, episode about the exclusivity of Christ. All that basically means is that Jesus is the only way to salvation, and the truth of life and how we should live it both morally and among each other and spiritually is found only from the Christian worldview. Well, how can you say Jesus is the only way to heaven? Isn't that arrogant? That's so intolerant of other people's beliefs. The truth is all worldviews or religious beliefs are exclusive by very nature. Now, more frequently in today's society, Christians are labeled as bigots or intolerant or accused of being small-minded because we don't adhere to the current social climate of certain philosophies, such as love is love, live your truth, or tell your story. Well, interestingly, those who accuse us of being intolerant typically end up behaving intolerantly themselves toward us for not agreeing with them and celebrating their opinion. But the problem is the world doesn't work this way. In a short answer booklet related to Lee Strobel's The Case for Christ, he points out that there is such a thing as being appropriately narrow-minded and presents the following examples. We insist that children walk along sidewalks, not the middle of the street. We want a doctor that prescribes medicine that heals the body instead of poisoning it. And we want an airplane pilot to be exclusive about taking off and landing from a runway instead of a cornfield or a beach. And these are good examples of what would be appropriately narrow-minded, appropriately exclusive behavior that everyone would expect. As we profess God's truth in this world, because it's fallen, we will always find resistance. And this should come as no surprise, because Jesus says that the world will hate us. In the Sermon on the Mount, found in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And in John, he also says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it has hated you. So be encouraged and remember that any evil spoken against you when you are standing for God's truth is false. And it's really, it's not even directed against you. It's directed as a rebellion against God. But we also have to remember that we too were once on the side of rebellion. And so the grace and the patience and the forgiveness that was granted to us, we need to apply to other people around us who don't share our worldview, who have not seen the light yet, who God has not removed the scales from their eyes. As C.S. Lewis points out, though, in mere Christianity, we don't have to believe that all other worldviews or religions are simply wrong. There may be truths that are found within these other worldviews or religions, but just like in mathematics, there is only one correct answer to a sum. Well, it kind of begs the question, are we really being intolerant? It depends on your definition of intolerant, but if your speech and actions are personal and against the one with whom you're speaking, or if you're trying to belittle someone or a group of people for their beliefs or behaviors— then I think you can argue that you, you might be intolerant. However, if you're speaking truth against sinful behavior or upholding the righteousness and holiness of God and his word, then we are being intolerant against sin, but you're not being intolerant against the person whom you're trying to save. As we do this, though, and as we, as we walk this road, it's critical to remember our fight is not with fallen people. We've all fallen and fallen short, and we've all been blinded by sin, so our fight is not with them. Remember, the person you're engaging with is made in God's image and deserves the truth presented in love and grace, just as we received. So the fight isn't against flesh and blood, but rather it's against the spiritual forces of evil in this world. So, is Christianity exclusive? Yes, without a doubt. John 14, 6 quotes Jesus as saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jesus is claiming that he is the only one. There is no one else. There is no other path. There is no other option but to come to God through him. The uniqueness of Jesus and what he taught, the miracles that he performed and how he lived, point to his divinity of being God in the flesh. And this was proven through his death and resurrection. There is no other human throughout all of history or any other religion that claims these specific items. Current social trends like to claim that all religions are the same or that there are multiple paths to the same endpoint, which would be heaven or eternity and peace and paradise. But Jesus' words simply do not support that claim. The problem is no religion or worldview teaches this or backs it up. It's really just a feel-good statement that dulls the truth of our relationship with God when we are in the state of sin and separation, and we want to stay that way. So here are three examples of how we can find similarities while also identifying incompatibilities of other uh, worldview religions. And it's important that we look at these similarities and differences because as we interact with people uh, day to day, they come with their own backgrounds and upbringings, and it helps us to have conversation uh, with them and to find common ground, while also finding those places where we differ and where the truth of God can shine light. So, modern Judaism has a lot to agree with Christianity, especially when discussing the Old Testament and and the history of what happened with the uh, nation of Israel. And modern Judaism also acknowledges that, that Jesus was a great moral teacher in an historical context, but they deny that he was the Messiah. Well, the problem is, if he's a great moral teacher, can you really accept his teachings but ignore that he claimed to be God? I mean, this is insane. From that, from a point of morality, someone who claims to be God in the flesh, hes he's either telling the truth, in which case it's good, or he's a liar, in which case he's not a very good moral teacher. So yes, we can agree on the history of the Old Testament and what's written there, but we cannot agree on who Jesus was spiritually. Well, Let's take a look at Islam. Islam agrees with the claims of God as compassionate and merciful and gracious. I agree with that. Islam also acknowledges Jesus and includes him in the list of prophets that lead up to the prophet Muhammad, who is seen as God's ultimate prophet. However, the Quran denies Jesus' death on the cross. In Surah 4, 157, it reads, Yet they slew him not, and they crucified him not. But they had only his likeness, which indicated someone else was made to look like Jesus instead. Well, this this doesn't agree with the Holy Bible. Uh, it clearly disagrees with the claim that Jesus was only a prophet and that he was never crucified. We know that he was he was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet, and not only was he crucified, but he resurrected three days later from the grave. Buddhism can either acknowledge many gods or no gods, denies any ultimate creator god, and that both moral right and moral wrong are simply two sides of the same coin. This was a little harder to find similarities. However, Buddhism rightly identifies a disconnect between our physical lives and our awareness of and experience of the spiritual realm. But clearly, Christianity teaches there is only one god, who is the creator of all things, and the author of morality differentiating between right and wrong. So these two worldviews are not compatible. Well, is Christianity inclusive? Well, yes, without a doubt. Tim Keller, who died this last May and moved on to glory with Christ, points out in his book, The Reason for God, that the early Christians mixed people from different races and classes in ways that seemed scandalous to those around them, and then poses the following question and answer. Why would such an exclusive belief system lead to behavior that was so open to others? It was because Christians had within their belief system the strongest possible resource for practicing sacrificial service, generosity, and peacemaking. At the very heart of their view of reality was a man who died for his enemies, praying for their forgiveness. In Galatians 3.28, the Apostle Paul states, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This isn't a statement supporting one nationality over another, or about confusions over gender identity, It's a revelation of the truth that what binds us together, what we hold in common, is the blood of Christ and the forgiveness that is free to all, regardless of any titles, genders, or backgrounds, or previous worldviews, or things that they have done. And this hasn't changed, because God hasn't changed, and the good news of Christ hasn't changed, and it never will change. It still goes on today. I feel blessed to be part of a church that is a mix of young and old, it has many nationalities, many ethnicities, both male and female, rich and poor, the list could go on. Many I probably would never speak to naturally. If I saw them on the street, I would probably walk past. But because we have Christ in common, we are a family. And that family is open to anyone who repents of their sin and receives Jesus Christ as their Savior. And if that's you today, and you don't have that family or you're not in that family, you can be. All it requires is that you recognize The sin in your life, you repent of it, you turn away from it, receive Jesus Christ as your savior, and you're a part of the family. So if that's not you, I encourage you, look into it. Give your life to Christ. It will change everything for you. Well, I wanna very quickly return to the statements that I started with. Love is love sounds nice, but the problem is that anything we do outside of Christ is not done in a selfless love for others, but rather a selfish love of ourselves, and that will lead to hurt and brokenness and evil. Live Your Truth places you as the main character of your story in your life. but well, That's a lot of yous. Again, this puts the individual not only above everyone else around you, but also means that there is no single truth that binds our existence together. So in short, this quickly becomes selfish chaos and tell your story. Again, the focus is purely set on you. Are you sure if someone wrote your story for the whole world to see and read that that is something you'd really want out there? The lie the world tells us is that we are the most important thing in our eyes. The truth is, our story is not really our story at all. It's God's story. Yes, we have a part to play in that story, and yes, we are loved by that great big God, but it is His story. To Him be the honor and glory, And power. And that, my dear friends, is where we find love and truth and peace and joy and true freedom. You've been listening to Faith So Simple. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope you were blessed by today's discussion and learned something new that you can share with someone else. All music was written, performed, and recorded by me, your host, Joe Staines. If you have any questions about today's content or any other episode, please reach out to me at faithsosimple at gmail.com, and I'll do my best to get back to you, or I might even include your question in a future episode. And if you have a moment, why not help me out by leaving a review, following the show, sharing it with a friend, or all of the above? Once again, thank you for listening. This is your host, Joe Staines, signing off. God bless, and we'll see you next time.